Hey everyone, welcome to the Sports Deli, Season 1, Episode 10. And before we bring on our special guest today, who is truly an American hero, we're going to talk a little bit about the NBA, the NFL, the WNBA, the recent developments with the NCAA and intercollegiate athletics, namely football, and much, much more. As we predicted on this show, the avalanche has begun. Well, as it was just announced, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have decided to postpone their fall seasons for football and all of athletics and move it to the spring. And the Big 12 and the ACC and the SEC are playing the waiting game. And I find that very interesting. I I think what's more interesting to me is how uh, different doctors, for example, in the ACC, uh, one of the medical doctors in the ACC said that uh, return to play could be safe. And in the Big Ten, there's two doctors that are presidents of universities. I think it's Michigan and Michigan State, if my memory serves me correctly. We're saying that it's too risky for a number of reasons, not just long-term ramifications possibly on the heart, but short-term breakouts and health concerns for the players. So there's been a number of people weighing in on this. I've heard Reese Davis talk about if you do postpone it to the spring, then how is that going to impact 2021? Because then you're basically playing two seasons in a single season in terms of uh, proximity to each other. And how is that uh, taking into consideration the health and safety of the players by playing games through May and then starting up again with summer ball and uh, the 2021 season will you know, start up not long thereafter. So it's, it's a mess. And I know that the NCAA is an association, but how is it that there is so much uh, disparity in terms of thoughts and opinions and decision-making on what each individual conference is doing from the mid-majors to the smaller schools and then uh, ultimately with the power fives. It's just a mess right now. I, I just am completely blown away by a number of the things that I've been seeing. And what it really shows is the dysfunction of the NCAA and the horrendous leadership by Mark Emeritt. Honestly, I don't know who's worse, Major League Baseball's commissioner, Rob Manfred, or Mark Emeritt of the NCAA, the president of the NCAA. Both have just completely botched this pandemic and the decision-making that has come as a result of it. And, you know, it's like a coach who's making the decisions at the end of a game. That's what you get paid the money for. You know, that's what people are relying on you for to make these important decisions. And, you know, both of these guys are, you know, showing that they're completely incompetent or not able to handle this type of pressure. And I really question whether or not they should be in these leadership positions, to be quite honest with you, because there's a lot of lives at stake. No, the outbreak is, I, I agree. I mean, I think what they're trying to do, Mike, is they're trying to buy time, that, but they'll go to training, they'll go to camp, and then the first two weeks they'll realize we can't, we can't even They'll do wait this till the last them. possible minute. Right, right. And then they're like, we can't do this. And I'm sure behind the scenes, the commissioners of the big conferences are negotiating with the TV contracts. If we have to go to spring, what's the deal going to look like? 
Well, there is a lot of this that's financial. Um, I read somewhere where I think it was the big sky. They can't handle the prices for the COVID tests at $150 a pop. Right. And so they have to do everything in their power, you know, 80 times 150. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're talking in the tens. Well, not, of- not only that, Mike, I believe the latest ruling from the NCA is if you're going to play, your players have to be tested 72 hours before the games. So if you're going to have everything from volleyball, you know, they would, you know, you play like 32 volleyball matches. That means that you have to test them like 32 times. Yeah. So it's a wait and see thing with the, with the NCAA. I think, you know, <clears throat> I'll be in agreement there and we'll just, you know, we'll see where it goes. And the other aspect of all of this is that there are a lot of players and coaches that want to play. So now the decision has been handed down. Now we're hearing that there's, a lot of disagreements with the conference commissioner's decision to postpone football until the spring. So it's just an unprecedented uh, week or 48 hours uh, in college football in particular. And it's just amazing um, that we're going in so many different directions. But like I said, this is the first time that anyone's ever had to deal with something like this. And it's, it's not easy, but there is an overwhelming sentiment from the players and a lot of the coaches they wanted to play you know this is what they've worked their whole lives for so they're willing to take a chance and play the season in the fall and the question is are you thinking like a parent are you thinking like an administrator are you thinking like a player and having been a former intercollegiate athlete myself and i know if my senior season was going to be potentially taken away for example or you know, any other scenario where I wasn't able to play or things were being postponed, I know as a player, I'd want to play. I would probably take a chance if I felt like there was a lot of precautions taking place to protect me in a sport like basketball or football. But if I'm an administrator, I can sympathize with the administrators uh, making the decisions or coming to the conclusions that they're coming to. It's a very difficult situation. Uh, and it's upsetting to a, a lot of people. And when people are dying every day, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, and there's stories every day. Uh, I just heard a story uh, from a friend of mine who works in the medical field, and a 37-year-old nurse perished as a result of COVID. So I, I do want to keep things in perspective because it, it is sports. But there are also, you know, a lot of people that... Uh, whose jobs are at stake as a result of these decisions that are going to be made or not be made or decisions to postpone things. There's a potential for universities and athletic departments to be wiped out completely. So there has to be a a tremendous amount of sensitivity and thoughtfulness that goes into these decisions. You're listening to The Sports Deli, Season 1, Episode 10, with Coach K, Dr. J, and me, Hootie Hoot. Mike Kutner, and our special guests will be coming up in about 15 minutes, so stay tuned for that. You will not want to miss it here in the Sports Deli. And another scary thing to think about is how the cancellation of the football season, not only for the fall, but if it so happens that the spring gets canceled, you're talking about a complete decimation of athletic departments, cancellation of sports, other sports uh, forever. And I don't think they'll ever be brought back, as we've talked about in this show before. But there's a lot of unknowns, and it's just uh, 
a trickle down effect because of football that a lot of these schools, you know, we're talking in the hundreds of millions of dollars and the effects on the rest of the athletic department are directly contingent on what happens with football every year. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens with the Big 12 or the ACC or the SEC. And uh, I have a feeling that I, I think that one of these three Power Five conferences is going to try and play the season as long as the numbers uh, nationwide and in their respective states go down, which is quite possible. Uh, and they remain in the bubble. And I think part of it is whether or not the schools that we're talking about in particular have face-to-face classes or if they're able to strictly be online, I think that will factor in to uh, whether or not there's a, a rise in the numbers again because if they're maintaining sort of a unofficial bubble and not having to go into classrooms and engage other students and things like that, I think there's a chance. But, you know, and then it begs the question as to what's going to happen in the spring with the, uh, the uh, playoffs. And yes, we only need four teams to crown a national champion. But it's just amazing that there's the potential of three Power Five conferences could play in the fall. <laughs> and the other two are going to play in the spring for sure. It's just it's just amazing. And I know that we've never been through something like this before, so it's really hard to judge anyone. But it just seems like there should have been more of a collaborative effort. And But because of the way that the, the finances are structured at various colleges and universities throughout the country, you know, you take Kansas State, for example, the, their football program is separate from the rest of the college. And oftentimes they're giving the college uh, funding at the end of the year to help subsidize some of the things that they may have a shortfall of. So it's it's just a, an unbelievable situation. He called it cataclysmic, and he just said he's never seen anything like this in the history of college athletics and college football in particular. And Jay Billis from ESPN had some interesting comments. Take a listen. Uh, profound disappointment, uh, not only for the situation, but for the decision itself, and profound disappointment that we can't have uh, collaborative cooperation within college sports. Uh, I, I'm not saying that the reasons behind the decision made by the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were not sound ones. What I'm saying is that we have five different power conferences with five different medical advisory teams and there's no collaboration among those teams. And the NCAA has in the NCAA office that Mark Emmert oversees up in Indianapolis has its own advisory team. And they're not sharing information with the public, nor clearly are they sharing information with each other because one advisory team says he can't play. And at least two others are saying full speed ahead. You can absolutely play and it's safe. Well, it, it's not that we couldn't foresee this at the time. It seemed remote because we were dealing with something we really didn't have any understanding of. Uh, our understanding of things has progressed some, but it, it's still very new. There are a lot of unknowns. So, again, I'm not second guessing the Pac-12's decision here because their footprint is very different than that of other conferences. There are far more hotspots, especially in the state of California, where it's going to be very difficult. But for other leagues, I mean, I've been hearing from coaches nonstop 
saying that there's no reason that basketball cannot be played in November because students are leaving campus. I mean, basically every campus is going to be getting their students out uh, before Thanksgiving. So that uh, most coaches are looking at this saying there's no reason that we can't uh, have our players isolated during that period and be perfectly safe to play basketball. But again, there's a long way between now and, and November. But we're already seeing a, a lot of different teams are, are isolating right now. They're being put in hotels. They're essentially creating their own bubble for their football and basketball teams. The only difference is that the coaches are not isolated with them as they are in the NBA bubble. Clearly, there's varying opinions about the college football season, and we'll just have to wait and see. And the impact of the football season will also affect the NFL draft next year because so many players like the Burroughs and Kyler Murrays that uh, as a result of their final year of play improve their draft status and now the players are not going to have an opportunity to do that. So it's a multi-layered issue. It'll all sort itself out eventually. But right now it's just uh, a lot of unknowns and we're just going to have to play the waiting game and hopefully bigger picture people will continue to behave in a responsible manner and they mask up. So let's change gears a little bit and talk a little NBA and the bubble, where we think things are going as far as uh, the 2020 NBA playoffs, possible upsets. It's been an interesting bubble. There's been some surprises. Phoenix up to this point has not lost a game in the bubble. They still got a shot at the playoffs. San Antonio's got a shot. A couple others, including Portland, controls their own destiny. So I'm excited for the playoffs. I think they've done a great job with a number of uh, aspects, mainly keeping everyone safe. And seeing some of the players that we haven't really talked about much during the regular season have some breakout bubble seasons, like Gary Trent Jr., whose dad in his own right was a really good player. Uh, Michael Porter Jr., how uh, Carmelo Anthony has reinvented himself. T.J. Warren and uh, Chris Paul has done some amazing things. It's been really fun and exciting, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really excited about the playoffs. What's your biggest <laughs> takeaway from the bubble so far besides there's been no positive tests? In the I love it. Day? I love the bubble. Let me tell you why. I love the bubble because I love that def they can – one thing I think you're seeing is the players not – work up the refs because the fans aren't there to help them. There's been, there, it's been, it's been much more, look, there's been some disagreements, but there's not the showboating without the fans there. It, the games have gone quicker, in my opinion. At least they feel like they've gone quicker. It's a more intimate setting. Whoever thought about the virtual fans is brilliant. And I also like, it's almost like summer league that they got games going on all the time and they have to do that because they don't have 28 or 16 courts. They got like, I know, eight or 10. So there's always activity. But like I said, I, I just think, I think the one thing this is going to show for baseball and whether you, in basketball is that all these seasons other than the NFL are too damn long. Well, it's and not I, just going to, it's not just going to show that it's going to, it's going to show, I think a radical difference between the management of indoor and outdoor sport and, 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 and also say some things about roster sizes, but so what, I mean, you, you know, you're not going to come out of this and, and, and say, well, you know, we carried 55 people or whatever it was they carry on an NFL football team, and we're going to trim that down. That's right. not going to happen. But, you know, the, the difference between an indoor sport and an outdoor sport and a 12-man roster and a 50-man roster is that you have some latitudes, and I think that the bubble 
shows that the NBA has got their act together as a sports league. Right. Absolutely. Concerns about the Lakers. Davis looks like Davis looks like he normally looks like when he he I would not sign him to a long term deal. He really? is for, I would not. He's he's not he's not gonna make it. He he breaks down. He can't go for forty one night and nine another night. You gotta be consistent. You gotta know what you're getting. You don't think it's the right system for he's one of the top five players in the league. Okay. Whatever that means. So I if, mean, but if so you're saying if LeBron leaves, he can't lead a team to a championship. No, no. But I also think they're one I think the Avery Bradley not coming back is killing them. Agreed. Because they went and got out and got J.R. Smith and the well, guy from Rondo's not playing. J.R. Smith's playing, and the guy um, Dion Waiters, who <clears throat> he gets off the bus shooting the ball. I mean, he, his last <laughs> thing in his life he's thinking about his defense. So um, not the playoffs yet, though, John. You know, it's a different level of uh, yeah. But I just don't. I, I don't see it. I don't see it with the Lakers. I. I mean, I. I tell you, right. Does the number one seed not matter anymore? I mean, it, does, uh, they, it doesn't matter. They, could they pull a Denver and upset? I think. Let me tell you right now. I think the Portland Trailblazers could beat the Lakers. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, Lillard just dropped sixty-one. You know, McCollum and uh, Carmelo Anthony, and they they got a good cast of characters that could upset the Lakers. You know, it's going to be styles of play that determines probably who wins that, and. Uh, Assuming everyone stays healthy, I still take the Lakers, but uh, Portland could definitely make things interesting. Let's talk about college basketball for a few minutes here, and uh, obviously there's a ripple effect with football and basketball. Are we going to have basketball in the fall, do you think? When I heard today, I I don't know if you guys read, I read today that the Big East for men's basketball and women's basketball and one other conference are considering a bubble. I don't know how you do that at the college level, but they're realizing this is, they can't pull this. I, I, they're not going to play. They're going to play in the spring. I just wonder why they don't allow all the students to finish school, whether the situation allows for students to be in person or online until Thanksgiving. And then once Thanksgiving is over, there's no students on campus from Thanksgiving until, say, February. So you can have most of your basketball season during this time. There's no students, so that way the players can remain in a bubble, so to speak, and you have a greater chance of completing the college basketball season. I just think college basketball has a better chance just because, obviously, there's less players. And if they try and complete the majority of the basketball season, after Thanksgiving and before the start of the second semester, I think there's a real shot that they could pull this off. We'll have to just wait and see, but I think basketball's got a better chance, and I think they'll learn a lot from how the fall situation has panned out, and we'll know more as far as the number of cases in each particular situation, and that will ultimately dictate whether or not these programs uh, and universities and college presidents can move forward uh, with intercollegiate athletics. And I want to transition to the NFL before we bring our very special and historic guest on in about five minutes. But I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was a, a really interesting article in Sports Illustrated by Mitch Goldich. He laid out a number of things that, although risky uh, by his own admission, 
there's some really thought-provoking ideas. Obviously, there's been outbreaks uh, on college campuses in terms of summer football and uh, with Major League Baseball, uh, and there has not been with Major League uh, Soccer uh, re in recent weeks and with uh, the NBA and the WNBA. Uh, golf has done a really good job, but with the NFL, obviously, in terms of sheer numbers of players and coaches, which not many people talk about, there's between 20 and 30 coaches for every NFL team. And so it's just a huge operation, much bigger than the NBA or the WNBA. He proposed that each team play eight games, uh, that they alternate weeks between the AFC and the NFC. So for example, uh, you'd have two weeks in between games so that if there was an outbreak, you'd have time to recover, which I thought was uh, one of the most brilliant parts of the proposal. And you can go on SI.com and, and check out his column. Uh, he talked about playing every game at night, which I uh, proposed myself in a previous podcast. And that way you don't have to stay in a hotel and you travel on the same day. And obviously you create a situation where the games uh, are within, say, a couple hundred miles. Uh, so that way, you, you know, you're not exhausted by the time you get to the game. You still can get there four or five hours beforehand and, you know, get into your normal routine. Well, the new normal routine. And so they would not lose any money in terms of television because they would still be able to play the same number of games, same number of television games. And I thought this part was really interesting. He said there would be games on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday, I think. And Well, and if college football doesn't take place this fall, and even if it does, it would be a much smaller scale, and they could have NFL games conceivably every day from Wednesday through Sunday. I mean, that would be great. I would love that. And so it may not look uh, the same as it did before. Um, you know, I think he laid out a really good proposal in terms of additional playoff teams that uh, make the playoffs. And he has some other, and it's a great opportunity to try uh, something new in the midst of this pandemic. And who knows, maybe it turns out to be uh, cost cutting in the long run and safer for the players, cuts down on travel. Uh, so although it's half the games, and I don't know if the Players Association or the owners would go for it, I thought it was a really good idea. The teams would fly charter, all the games would be at night. Right. And the teams would fly charter the same and they leave day. the same day and they go back the same day so they don't go to a hotel. They go from the airport, right bus, to the stadium, right to the stadium. Yep, go all the way back. It's an. Nah. It's the kind of it's the kind of thinking that needs to be done. I mean, whether well, well, we, what I said this is what I said two weeks ago, and but I I, I propose you know on, on this same uh, level of thinking that if you're not going to have a bubble, which I think that they should have found a way to have a bubble, there's land you could bring in motor uh, motor homes. There's ways to do it. You could you could put a football four football fields in, in three different bubbles and have twelve fields, play them at night. You know you could you could form a bubble. It'd be expensive. Well, uh, that, that the idea isn't the idea that idea isn't isn't particularly new because when this first sprung in March, I heard people talking about you know high school basketball as you know get off the bus, tip off the game, get on the bus, go home. 
like no locker room, no chalk talk, of course. none of that stuff. So that's, that, this is just a, I think just a, an evolution of that idea. But yeah, I mean, I love the idea. I mean, obviously if they take the chance and play a 16 game schedule, which I just think a week in between when there's still games on Thursday and Monday uh, is going to cause, you know, um, serious issues if there's a break, you know, a, a breakout again. Um, but, but Mike, part of the problem with the eight game is the players won't go for it because it's not enough money. Right. But what if they're That's guaranteed the, the same salary or 50% Owners won't more? do it. O owners won't do it. That's why they – That's uh, well, maybe they will. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I just don't see it happening. I mean, at what point do you cut your losses and, 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 and throw the dice? I don't know. I don't know. That, that depends. You know. That's probably an individualized decision based on, you know, who the owner is and what his, what his situation but, is. I well, mean, shouldn't there be two weeks between games? I like agree. That, part, that part of it just seems common sense so that if there is an, an outbreak. But if you have two weeks between games, I mean, you're, are, are you already taking a fan hit? No, no, no. To... Two, two weeks between games for that team. There's still games every week. Okay. But if the Redskins play this week, they play in two weeks. It's a Lions play. But I mean, how are you? I know, but how are you? How are you as a fan? How? What are you going to do with two weeks off? That's. They're still going to root for their teams. That's not going to change. I'm talking about base. you specifically. You doesn't that doesn't that sort of the traction that you that they get as a as a fan doesn't that traction have to sort of continue? You don't think it's I mean, going to continue? Isn't that why the isn't that why the games are? I'm saying, isn't that why the games are spaced the way they're spaced? In a normal to situation, to, yeah, I think yeah, Gordon, to yeah to maintain to maintain the traction of of fan fan interest to the next week or the next game if I it's a Thursday night. Yeah, I think I think I don't the think point, that'll change. I don't think I think change. the point, Gordon, is that if you don't do this, there'll be no season come week two. Okay. That you got you got to you got to do something different than thinking, this is the only you, way. You thinking you can? You, they decided not to go with the bubble. We know Mike laid out all the reasons why. The then this is the avenue you have to go, where like he's saying, two weeks off. If anybody's you know gives people time to clear, it also would be great for the game because the bodies would be completely rested and the play would probably be a hell of a lot better. Oh, um, I agree. Um, but but the money side wouldn't be there. But it's if if your choice is eight games for a season, or let's say ten games, let's say they can get ten games in. But they're going to get their TV money because they're going to play the same number down. of TV dates. Well, Mike, it's it's not the same amount of TV games because the NFL gets sixteen games a Sunday, and they're only going to get eight this way. The way you're laying it out, they're going to get eight. Yeah, games. but if they play on Wednesday, Thursday, they're they're, they're two showing games. More. Two games they're on four, two games over four days. Two games a day. Right. Eight games. Um, let's talk. Let's talk about the Atlanta Dream. I do, and and let me tell you why I want to talk about the Atlanta Dream. I want to talk about it because I think, uh, I think, the rift between, you know, Senator Loeffler, who's a part owner or was a part owner, and and the the women who play for that team and their unification in in wearing the shirts that they wore. I think that's significant. I think that's a that that stands out to me. And I think it, it needs to be recognized. And I think that people have feelings about it. This is the Sports Deli Podcast, Season 1, Episode 10, with Coach K, Dr. J, and myself, Hootie Hoop. And now back to the discussion on the Atlanta Dream and the WNBA.
I mean, I, I agree. I posted something this week on uh, Instagram and uh, I think what was really interesting about it was, was that there was a lot of players speaking out against her comments initially and then they went silent for a couple of weeks and it's like, we're not going to engage uh, these comments because it's, it's noise, but at the same time, we're going to put a plan of action together. And they did it without anyone's knowledge. And I think the WNBA as a whole should be given uh, so much credit for what they're doing to continue to uh, preach the social injustice messages and um, mm -hmm. whether it's Breonna Taylor or you know, this situation with, with uh, the, the political aspect and how it's crossed over into the realm of sports and, and what they did to support, you know, the other candidate in, in Georgia. Reverend Warnock, uh, who, who is African-American, I think that's uh, an important thing to share as well. Um, it's, it's really unheard of, right? It's really very unheard, unheard of. of. So, well, that would happen. And someone said to me, you know, oh, so now WNBA players are, are telling fans who to vote for. And I, and I was like, well, they've been telling people to buy certain uh, athletic apparel, shoes, shirts. They've been telling people to buy certain other uh, certain uh, sports drinks. Why, why shouldn't they tell people what they think about in terms of, uh, um, you know, political choices? Well, or and now is the time and they're not going to be criticized for it. And John, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this. Your dad was very involved in politics. He was a lawyer. Yep. And you learned a lot of things from your dad and your passion for politics is, is uh, equal to sports in many ways. Um, I, I, I'm just interested to hear what you think about, you know, their action and, and this uh, unprecedented uh, action they're taking. The players? You're talking about the players on the team. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it was fantastic. I think they're, you know, um, if that's how they feel, and I think – it, it sends the right message and you know this the the senator that owns the team her husband and her are very wealthy obviously and well connected but they they're out of step i think with what's taking place you know the players on the team and it was more of a transactional ownership experience i don't know if she was i think she might have been the minority owner so she i don't was. know yeah 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 so um but I think it's it's going to be interesting to see if this can elevate and go into other other uh, go with other teams. You know how how far can someone take this? But I think you know timing's everything, and I think the timing was right for the women. And I think you know here's a question I would ask: Okay, if that team was in Dallas, would that have had the same reaction as that team being in Atlanta because of everything that's taken place in Atlanta? Um, if the politics was happening in Texas? No, no, no. The, the, you know, there's a lot of stuff going, you know, the, the, the murder of the young the African-American in, in the Wendy's parking lot, the issues right. of the, the Black Lives Matter has been very outspoken in, in more in Atlanta than I would say in other parts of the country. And, you know, like I said, timing's everything. And I think they picked the right timing and had well, the I mean, right, are you the right asking message. Are you asking, would it be different in a different place? Yeah, I think it would. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also Absolutely. think one of the things that was good they did is they didn't ask for more money. You know, it wasn't about their individual pay or that they were deserving this. It was about a bigger, something bigger than them. And right. that's why, right. and that's why, and the team got into it together. And I think that's why it gained traction. 
I think if it was, if they had any, like one of the things I thought was, um, you know, with the, the players at the PAC 12, they're trying to do this for protection of COVID, but then they threw in, they, they're, they want to be compensated for their likeness. That's not the right, you can't throw that into the COVID debate. Right. You know, so they didn't throw, they didn't stockpile. They didn't try to bring other issues in. They stuck on one issue and they stayed focused and they were united and it was in the right city where that people were going to support them. Yeah. And uh, for those of you guys can't see this, uh, for those of you listening to the podcast, but uh, uh, coach K has a picture up of the, uh, the dream players with uh, their shirts on that say vote Warnock. And so in that same vein, uh, transition to the NBA and what uh, LeBron is doing to try and get the word out about voting. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the importance of um, people getting out and voting for their local officials. And John, you can probably touch on this better than myself and Gordon. You're pretty well versed on this kind of thing, but uh, you know, it's not just about your beliefs about uh, our leadership in this country. Right. Uh, it's about going forward, uh, not having so many people believe that their vote doesn't matter and the apathy that has been consistently right. taken place, part of systemic racism as it relates to voting in one aspect of this whole thing and how we can, you know, with the leadership of professional athletes or entertainers uh, amongst others, especially African-Americans in these positions, you know, getting people to uh, vote. It's just unbelievably important. To- uh, I mean, our, in our system, you, in our system, you, you can't possibly call yourself a patriot if you are not of the belief that as many people as possible in the country should be voting. I mean, they go hand in hand. You, 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 can't, you can't in one hand raise and wave a flag and talk about what a great patriot you are and with the other hand, not get yourself involved in, in getting everybody the franchise and making sure they exercise their option to vote. Especially Correct. now. I agree. I mean, I think perverse thing, people need to know if they're registered to vote or not, which sounds crazy. But if you've moved somewhere... Many times, if you have a driver's license, you would register to vote when you got your driver's license. People may not realize that. And if you're not registered, know how, it's usually 60 days or so. It's depending on the state you live in. The second thing is people need to understand what the difference, you know, mail-in ballot compared to absentee compared to showing up to vote. Um, And And go to vote.org if you need to know more about, you know, how to uh, properly uh, vote and sign up and register and those types of things. Right. And you can also, Mike, you can also go to USA.gov and, and find out if you're a registered voter, USA.gov, and you can find out on that site if you are a registered voter. That's, that's great to know. And now we bring in our historic guest who on his Twitter page claims that he is, among other things, a husband dad, civil rights activist, educator, author, feminist, abolitionist, and animal lover. We are so honored to have this special guest with us here today, someone who has been involved with civil rights. I could talk about this unbelievable American hero who's going to go down as one of the greatest civil rights activists in the history of our country. And it is without further ado, 
that I introduce to you this true American hero, Dr. Richard Lapchick. Welcome to the Sports Deli. Along with Gordon and myself, Mike Hootner, we're honored that you're here, and it's truly a privilege, and we cannot wait to hear what you have to say about what's going on with regards to the current movement, as you call the racial reckoning, and some of the things that led you to this point in your fight for social justice and equality, not only in America, but globally. Dr. Lapchick, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Doc, how are you? You good? How's Florida? Is it hot there already this morning? It always is. May <laughs> to October. You're a braver man than me. So, um, Dr. Lapchick, really, really appreciate you making time uh, to do this. Um, instead of being on ESPN or instead of going to the ESPYs or instead, you know, I mean, um, you're, you are um, undeniably one of the top voices in a really crucial time where sport and racial equality overlap. You must be incredibly excited, uh, having probably waited for, um, it, to use Gladwell, a tipping point like this, but um, we really appreciate you, you being with us and we wanna make that really, really clear. Appreciate that, thank you. And so, you know, I've uh, been passionate about sports and uh, being from, uh, Oak Park, Michigan, you know, I had a lot of experiences going from a Jewish day school to the public school system. And I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, it changed my life forever. And I know that you have been through some unbelievable experiences and, and you've shared those things with the world over the years, but ask you, you know, maybe uh, between now and even a few weeks ago, how, how have changed any of your views or what are you most proud of in terms of what, what the professional sports leagues are doing, um, just in terms of their approach to return to play or what the WNBA is doing in terms of, you know, their um, messages with regards to social injustice as well as the NBA. You know, as, as somebody who's part of the sports world, I'm particularly proud uh, of the way uh, many aspects of sport have handled both the, the pandemic as well as the racial reckoning. You know, I think that um, we were bumbling along uh, with the early days of the pandemic uh, until an NBA player tested positively and then Adam Silver literally shut the league down that day uh, and everything else followed in the country. You know, there was not much being shut down in, in and outside of sports, but they took the lead. Adam took the lead. I think that, you know, sports uh, showed the way in other ways. The, the next day, Zion Williamson announced that he was going to donate the money to cover the salaries of all the people who worked at the uh, facility where the Pelicans played and, and literally a hundred million dollars was accumulated for employees of other, other teams as well as for anti-coronavirus efforts uh, in the country by uh, professional athletes. I think the public saw the vacuum and realized how much they loved sports even more. Uh, one of the things that has made me uh, really most proud recently is as a result of the kind of leadership that that sports, particularly the NBA and WNBA, but really everybody has taken uh, and the racial reckoning uh, with the way we resume sports is there was a Nielsen poll uh, of sports fans on and their attitudes on race that came out uh, about a week ago. 
and it showed that sports fans who I've considered to be generally either apolitical or uh, not very progressive most of my life, 70, over 75% in all the questions asked about race and racism and the, and the behavior of athletes and teams supported what they were doing in terms of race, mm-hmm. uh, contributed to, contri- financially contributed to Black Lives Matter, protested uh, with Black Lives Matter. It was an astonishing uh, turnaround and sign of hope that sports really has had an impact uh, by the way they're conducting themselves, especially the NBA and WNBA. Dr. Lachik, I, you know, I, um, you might be the hardest person that um, I've ever prepped for to interview. And, and there, there have been many, uh, Coach Knight, Larry King. Um, but I, I went over a lot of your background and there's a whole lot to unpack. So um, I don't expect to get to all of it. And um, what, what we are, we're hoping to do is, you know, try to actively listen to the things that you share with us and, and take the things that are presented in your responses. And um, I don't know how great we are at that, but we're going to give it a shot. So I, I know uh, I went to IU um, when I went to the graduate program there in sports management. I don't think uh, the UCF program had, had fully developed into the number two program it now is. Um, maybe that stuff happened later, but it was the mid-90s um, when you and I probably first crossed paths when I was in Orlando. Um, and so... I was in Bloomington with Larry Fielding and Gary Sales, and you were somewhere else. And I, having looked at your stuff, I, I wish we had spent some time together. Um, l- let, me, let me ask you this, in, in those intro courses um, for people who wanna go into sport, where, where we are now including in your program, um, ethics and diversity, there is always an introduction about the benefits of sport in society. That's like the first page in the textbook. Would you share with us um, your, your view on um, the role you think sports plays, why it's a plus, why we need it? You mean that in terms of impacting society and changing yes. society or? Yeah, impacting the, 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 what, it, what it lends, why it shouldn't be cut from uh, high school programs, why we need to um, sing its praises and, and preserve it and hold it carefully. Well, sport, you know, you can start from the youth sport level and, and everybody knows because it's written everywhere that there are health benefits from it, there are mental health benefits from it. There are, we argue that young people learn how to, about teamwork, they learn how to cooperate, they learn how to lead in terms of girls and, and women. A, a huge percentage of successful women in a study showed that they were uh, athletes growing up and attribute that, that training that they got as an athlete and preparation uh, for rising up through the corporate hierarchy. I think we're talking about more than 80% of senior women in, in corporate America were, were uh, responding that way in the survey. But for me, uh, you know, those are all good, but I, I look at sport as a way to change society, to have a positive influence on society. That's my, my corner of the world in sports, is to use it as a platform to address various social justice issues. Um, we have programs in, in our office on men's violence against women, on human trafficking, on diversity and inclusion, on leadership. Um, in back in, in a while ago, we had drug and alcohol uh, aspects to them when those were more discussed in the 80s and early 90s. I believe that using athletes and having them prepared to talk about issues intelligently is going to get people's attention more than if you or I were talking about it. You know, I think athlete activism today, which is unprecedented, it's something I worked most of my life to, to make happen unsuccessfully, uh, 
but all of a sudden in the last four or five years, it's changed dramatically and I don't think it'll ever go back. I think sports is now a positive weapon to affect social change in ways that never has been before. And we're seeing that right now uh, during the racial reckoning. But five years ago, we wouldn't have seen that. I think the death of Muhammad Ali had an enormous impact on athletes who were standing back and not getting engaged. And this would be so, 20, 2016, right? This is around, around yeah. 2016. Yeah. So they, young athletes saw 125,000 people pour into the streets of Louisville, showing their love and affection for this man. And more importantly, they saw at the same time, newspaper stories and, and broadcasts about the extent of his life and what he had done mm -hmm. for 50 years, not just that he stood up against the Vietnam War, they learned about him being consistently fighting for social justice and becoming the most pop, I would argue the most popular person in America by the time he passed away. And athletes thought, wow, if he, this, this guy's the most popular person in America and he did all this, maybe I can too. Shortly after that, the four NBA superstars go on the ESPYs and talk about police brutality and racism and they get adulation uh, from the public. And young athletes again saw that. The Pope had a summit on sport and service to humanity, adding his voice to global leaders who were talking about the positive value of sport, joining people like Mandela and Martin Luther King in his day, uh, his important voices for, for using athletes as, as powerful tools. And then it was then that Colin Kaepernick took the knee. Colin didn't come out of the blue and, and come onto a stage that hadn't been prepared for him. It had been prepared. That's not to diminish the importance or the courage that it took him to, to do what he did because, I mean, I told my wife that day that this would be his last season he'll ever play, but that someday he'll be regarded like Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Muhammad Ali. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. He's that's what, There was something that really last night when I was thinking about that, I wondered if, if there might be a, a reflection you had on you know, how history will, will remember Colin and, and what that will look like, uh, you know, decades down the road. And, and do, you, do you think that can be, uh, you can say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think Colin Kaepernick, nobody's going to remember his, his career as a football player in terms of specifics, but everybody's going to remember the knee. Everybody's going to remember that on the opening night of the NBA, WNBA season, literally every player knelt uh, when even the NBA didn't, uh, players didn't kneel as active as they were in previous years. Uh, Colin has had a dramatic impact on this society that I don't think we have a full measure of yet, but I think in the years ahead, we're gonna have that measure and people are gonna talk about Colin Kaepernick when they talk about Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Arthur Ashe and Muhammad Ali. You are listening to an interview with Dr. Richard Lapchick, human rights activist and writer in the Sports Deli. Now back to Dr. Lapchick. Now you you mentioned uh, Dr. Lapchick. You, now to 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 have to cover your credentials would take an hour. Um, between the numerous books you've authored, the honorary degrees, your own education, the uh, programming that you're doing at UCF, the uh, intertwined nature with the DeVos family and uh, there in Florida, and and how that program is. Uh, um, uh, enmeshed in what's going on at, at UCF in terms of sport management and, and diversity training. The report card, we, we, it, we don't have enough time for that. So I'm going to encourage anybody who's listening who has any doubt about the veracity of the information that you provide us to go and, and read your bio. Um, you mentioned Mandela. You mentioned Kaepernick. You mentioned uh, the four athletes at the ESPYs. Um, you mentioned Muhammad Ali. You, you've had a very... Um, You've had a very 
diverse uh, life experience in terms of sport. Um, and, and yet going, going, taking social justice uh, into a corner of the world, which I, I'm just going to label as sport, um, could not have been easy in the beginning, probably hasn't been easy over the decades. Just now, maybe after decades of work that you have just told us that wasn't, wasn't getting enough traction, you must be exhaling a little bit. There must be a little weight lifted. There must be a little um, light you see at the end of the tunnel. Well, in some ways, the weight has been added. I mean, I am literally working 12 hours a day, seven days a week since the murders. Um, but I think it's for good reasons. It's for the reasons you just said, that the people want to draw on um, people who have been involved. And there aren't that, that many who've been involved as, as long as I have, especially, um, <clears throat> to, to come about to advise them on what they can do in their own athletic departments with their athletes, with their sports programs, what they can do with their professional franchises. Um, you know, people are willing to do uh, things today that it would have been very difficult for me to imagine the success of it happening um, three months ago. So it was announced two nights ago that the West Coast Conference is going to mm -hmm. have, use us to do a racial and gender report card, the first uh, conference-wide uh, racial and gender report card in the, in the country. And equally important, they announced that they're implementing what they're calling the Russell Rule, named after Bill Russell, that will require diverse pools of candidates for all the top positions and head coaches in their athletic departments of those uh, schools in the West Coast Conference. I've been fighting for that uh, it, in the college level since 2007, calling it the Eddie Robinson Rule, naming it after the, the great Grambling coach, State yeah. coach. Um, but I, I went with Johnny Cochran and Cyrus Mary to the NFL in 2001 to threaten legal action if they didn't change their hiring practices. And the Rooney Rule was adopted shortly after that. Um, so I, I've been an advocate of diverse pools of candidates for, for all senior positions, uh, not just head coaching positions, but the decision-making positions uh, for 20 years now. And, and we're starting to see that happen. And I can tell you that I'm having discussions with other conferences uh, about racial and gender report cards, as well as the possibility of having a mandatory diverse pool of candidates adopted conference-wide. The same kind of racial and gender report cards that you guys do for the NBA, the NFL, ESPN, and hopefully every conference intercollegiately in the country going forward. It'll, it'll change outcomes. Will it change the... the bone marrow of the issue? It'll change who's making the decisions. Uh, you know, it was no accident from my point of view that the West Coast Conference did this, having the only woman of color uh, as a conference commissioner. <laughs> you know, everybody else, understandably, is trying to just trying to figure out what's going to happen this fall with the pandemic and with their athletic programs. But Gloria took the time to make this incredibly important initiative in her conference. Uh, and I think had something to do with her being a woman of color. I just think it's great that you're calling it the Bill Russell rule. Obviously, Bill Russell went to the University of San Francisco, which is a member of the West Coast Conference. So that is so appropriate for so many reasons to name it the Bill Russell rule. And as good of a player as Bill was, I'm sure he's equally, if not more proud and honored to be bringing buckets and championships off the court 
to fighting social injustice and and being a part of this groundbreaking initiative uh, along with the WBCA, the Women's Basketball Coaches Association, and the National Association of Basketball Coaches and the West Coast Conference in an effort to promote diversity in the hiring practices within intercollegiate athletics. Now, from a, from a background standpoint, you've you may, I don't know, you've spoken about your father. You've spoken about his efforts to um, integrate, if you will, the NBA in early years, maybe circa 1950. You were five or six years old, I think, at the time, and you were exposed probably to um, things uh, on the racial spectrum maybe a five-year-old really shouldn't be exposed to, but it's not uncommon. Do you feel like um, you've picked up the baton a little bit? Well, my father had a tremendous influence on what I ended up doing. Um, the incident you're talking about is when I was five, I looked outside my bedroom window in Yonkers, New York, where I was raised and saw his image swinging from a tree with people under the tree picketing. And for years after that, I'd pick up the extension phone in our house, my dad not knowing I was listening. And it was racial epithet after racial epithet being hurled at him. And I didn't know what they were, but I knew that a lot of people hated this man who was my best friend. And I would later, as I grew old enough to understand it, realized that it was the coach, as the coach of the New York Knicks, he had signed the first African-American player in the history of the NBA, Nat Sweetwater Clifton. I would later learn that he tried to get the New York Wrens uh, into the NBA in 1947, uh, that his team that he played on in the 1920s, the, the original Celtics, became the first white team to play against black teams, developing a rivalry uh, with the Wrens, where he learned the, and saw firsthand the effects of racism that most white people didn't have a chance to experience or see. I mean, the, the Celtics would go to whatever the best hotel in, in town and, and spend the night there. And then they'd watch his friends board a luxury bus that Bobby Douglas had bought because he knew his players wouldn't be accommodated in those hotels. Mm. Celtics could go into whatever restaurant they wanted to uh, and have a meal. He would watch his friends bring food onto the bus because they weren't gonna be served in those restaurants. Uh, three times they left town in tandem, the Celtics in, in their Stutz Bearcats car, following the Wrens in their bus. And they pulled into a gas station to watch the owner of the gas station come out with a rifle because he wasn't about to serve gas from his lily white pumps to this group of African-American players. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> in five games that they played against each other, there were actually race riots that took place during the games. Angry white fans stormed the courts. These were not in Southern cities, although they played a lot in the South. They were mostly in the Midwest including Michigan. And uh, the, 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 I think people think that basketball is called the net game because of the net under the rim. It was actually called the net game because owners of arenas where violence was threatened would build nets around the court so angry fans couldn't get to the players. The Celtics and the Wrens would come out to the court on the court when, that was, when they heard rumors that violence was possible with knives packed in their socks to, to defend themselves because they were pretty defenseless with an angry mob coming toward them. And my dad and his opposing center, a guy named Tarzan Cooper, who both inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, um, would come out before the game and they wouldn't shake hands like is the tradition today. They would literally hug each other and sometimes kiss each other because they wanted fans in those stands to see that for the Celtics and the Wrens, this wasn't about just a Hall of Fame basketball game, although both teams were inducted as teams into the Basketball Hall of Fame because they were so dominant. Uh, it was about what their their vision was that America could someday become. So my dad had a tremendous influence on on me as I learned those things, as I experienced the things I told you earlier. Uh, and I was 
you know, blessed that I was raised by this guy. You're listening to an interview with Dr. Richard Lapchick in the Sports Deli in our efforts to continue to educate, listen, and learn and share the information that we bring to you to help bridge the gap and continue the fight against social injustice. Now back to our interview with Dr. Richard Lapchick. Um, Dr. Lapchick, do you, you, uh, I know it's sort of, it sounds repetitious perhaps, but do you feel a strong connection to to his work? Do you you, um, acknowledge the lineage? Do you feel like, you know, there's a, that, that's, it's a continuation. I mean, your, your work obviously is far more comprehensive in the, the racial and diversity field than maybe the, the germination of your father's work with, with the league. Um, do you, aside from the, the influence, do you feel connected to that work? Yeah, no, I think there's a direct line to how I was raised. I think there was a direct line to my basketball career which was short-lived in some ways. Um, But everybody told me I was gonna play in the NBA because he was a great player. Uh, He was the dominant center of his day. I was, he was the first great big man. I was six feet tall in the eighth grade and was one of the taller players in New York City and was heavily recruited. And I was recruited by a school called Power Memorial, which was the top basketball program in the country at the time. I didn't go there, but I became friends with the coach. His name was Jack Donahue. And he invited me to his basketball camp in 1961. 1961, there weren't basketball camps. Even college coaches didn't have them, let alone high school coaches. But this guy started a camp. He brought his five of his white players and a black player to the camp. And one of the white players was hurling the N-word at the black player for the first three days of the camp until I finally challenged him. The guy literally knocked me out cold. Well, the black guy's name at the time was Lou Alcindor, became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And a lifelong friendship began that uh, it was so profound that when Kareem had his statue unveiled at the Staples Center, he asked me to speak at it. I was one of his two guests with Henry Louis Gates at the White House when he got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama. He flew to Orlando when I was scheduled to have surgery a number of years ago. Uh, so it's lasted literally 65, 60 plus years uh, since it was initially uh, started that day in that camp. But the importance of that friendship as a 15-year-old white kid was I suddenly had a young urban African-American lens to see what racism was doing in his community. Uh, and I decided based on that, that I was gonna spend the rest of my life working in the area of civil rights. And, and that's in, in effect what I did. I um, went and got a PhD in international race relations, which was the first PhD in the country in international race relations. This is the late 1960s. And I did my doctoral dissertation on how South Africa used sport as part of its foreign policy and the international response and compared it to how the Nazis had done that in the 1930s. Started teaching at a college in Virginia. Eventually the dissertation got published as a book in the early 1970s. I was started to be asked to speak about apartheid, founded the sports boycott of South Africa in the mid 1970s. We didn't have sports contacts with the United States or South Africa didn't happen with the United States, but as the European countries began to isolate South Africa and would no longer compete, suddenly in 1978, a South African Davis Cup team uh, was gonna play in the Davis Cup in the North American zone in Nashville, Tennessee. And my role as the leader of the coalition of groups that we had built to fight against apartheid was to go down there and try to get the matches stopped. I worked closely with the African governments. They asked me to announce they would boycott the Los Angeles Olympic Games in 1984, if this team was allowed to come. So before my last speech in Nashville that weekend to the student body at Vanderbilt, 
We held a press conference and all three networks were there because we leaked to the press what the content was going to be. And it was so potentially impactful on the Olympics that they were all there. And Dick Schapp, who was covering for NBC Nightly News at the time, came up to me and he said, the financial backers of the Davis Cup had pulled out. It looked like the matches were going to be canceled. I announced that to the crowd. It was an anti-apartheid crowd. They went crazy. And when I flew home that night to Virginia, I felt maybe for the first time in my life I'd done something worthwhile. Next day, I was working late in my, col in my college office. Office. I was in the school's library, which closed at 1030. At 1045, there was a knock on the door, and I assumed it was the campus security. Uh, so I didn't hesitate to open the door. And when I opened the door, instead, it was two men wearing stocking masks who proceeded to cause liver damage, kidney damage, a hernia concussion, and carved the N-word in my stomach with a pair of office scissors. So that night, lying in the hospital bed, I realized that if people had gone to the length they did to try to stop my father 28 years before and to the length they had gone that night to try to stop me, that they must have thought that our using the sport platform to address various social justice issues, particularly racism, was having an impact in a way they didn't want to have go ahead in the future. Uh, so I decided that night that I was going to spend the rest of my life and career using the sports platform to address racism and other social justice issues, and, and that's what I've done. Uh, I, I heard you talk about your relationship with David Stern, and I, I'm interested um, with all the things going on now. Uh, you mentioned that he read your autobiography, and then there was a relationship that started uh, not long thereafter. And my question is, do you think that the NBA uh, was largely due to your relationship with him and how he uh, saw things more globally at the tail end of his career and, and how the sport grew so much um, that maybe it didn't initially when he took office? I think David was, uh, had a global vision right from the start. You know, when he took over in 1983, uh, which I think was his first year as commissioner, the NBA was being called too black People were talking about how cocaine was so widely used in the NBA. Uh, and David Stern first obviously worked on reducing and eliminating the drug problem, but also his perspective was, we're just gonna put the best players on the court, no matter what the color of their skin, but we're also gonna hire the best people in our front offices. The, the NBA didn't need a Rooney rule because they were so far advanced because of what David Stern was doing from the beginning. Uh, and what, it, what my relation with David uh, changed um, when he, you're right, when he read my autobiography uh, and he realized why I did the things that I did, he, he then uh, gave me a call and said, you know, I'd like to do some things with you. And that's, that's really when it started. And my, the first thing that we did actively uh, was I was asked by the emerging government in South Africa, the Mandela, about to be Mandela government, to bring a program that we had started in America called Project Teamwork, which was being called America's most successful violence prevention program, to bring it to South Africa. And, and I went to David and later Charlie Grant, the head of the Players Association, and I said, would you help us? And on this trip were David, Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, um, Dikembe Mutombo, the coaches were Wes Unseld and Lenny Wilkins. Uh, and, you know, there was violence going on in South Africa. David took a risk and took my word that, that they would be protected. And Obviously, the NBA set up a great security system, which they do anyway, uh, for its players, and, and we were safe and protected. But still, to convince players to go, and I don't think it was any, any accident that there were three of John Thompson's players, because John Thompson 
you know, educated his players about social justice issues in addition to teaching them to, or coaching them to be successful basketball players. Uh, and that was the beginning of uh, what became Basketball Without Borders, which is one of the NBA's biggest programs. Now they finally launched it in, in, uh, in the year 2000, and now they go to South Africa mainly every year, but somewhere in Africa, and then they have it in Asia, they have it in, uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, and they're developing players from, from those areas as well as having an impact on those areas. And you look at the NBA now, and it's the percentage of, of international players on the NBA is, is quite extraordinary. The Texas Tech coach, uh, she was just let go um, either last night or this morning, just with regards to, you know, uh, the alleged abuse in, in her program. Whether it's this example or, or anything else, you know, what, you know, what are the, the things that, you know, you share with athletic departments, you know, with your reports that, can help them move in, in a better direction in terms of diversity and inclusion uh, so that we don't, you know, go backwards ever again? Well, you know, first of all, they're more receptive today than they have been before because of the racial reckoning. Uh, I mean, I'm literally on the phone advising athletic directors and conference commissioners every day, pretty much, uh, for the last three months. While we were here, I just saw my phone light up with a conference commissioner who was calling me. Uh, and it's not unusual that, that, that that's happening. They're asking for advice, what they can do, and they really want to bring about social change uh, and, and have an impact on, on their players. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we've used the word unprecedented to describe the current moment between the pandemic and the racial reckoning, and it really is that. Um, and, but I think that, you know, one of the things that we see is that all of the conference commissioners now, where they play football, you know, we're trying to decide, what, is there going to be a football season? Do we have spring football? Do we have any football? Uh, you know, they've got, they're facing millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that have been lost, uh, and they're trying to juggle that. But I think in the midst of that, the conference commissioners who are people of color, such as Gloria Navarez at the West Coast Conference, also are thinking about the racial issues at the same time. And I think it's because they have that diverse perspective. When I look back at... Um, Adam Silver becoming the commissioner in the NBA following David Stern, you know, arguably the most uh, di dynamic and dominant commissioner in the history of professional sports. Uh, and Adam was somebody obviously who was new. And on a Saturday, on a Friday night, the Donald Sterling tape leaks. And uh, Saturday morning, it's a major news story. And Adam was able to go to a diverse group of people in the NBA fr front office where there were lots of African-Americans, where there were lots of women, and get advice as to what to do. And when he got out Tuesday morning on that podium and said, we have no room for a racist owner in the NBA, Donald Sterling will not be an owner in the future. No, no, no commissioner had ever even taken any action against, the, against an owner, let alone throwing him out of the league. And that's the value of having diversity to, in, in the office, is to get those diverse perspectives, to listen to them, and to understand that, you know, maybe there's a different way of looking at this than I might have looked at as a white guy. He's a much different commissioner probably than his predecessor in terms of his approach and his, his viewpoint and, and his, his peers. Uh, probably, would you, would you say he's unique? I think Adam is, is amazing. Um, I think that, you know, he's the, the one commissioner who, as a result of what he did with Donald Sterling, the players came, became close to him. I mean, they realized that this guy really doesn't want to tolerate racism. 
mean, I think that objectively they probably knew that about David, but this, they knew throwing an owner out of the league was a bold, bold stand. And, you know, he was supportive of the players after Colin Kaepernick, he was supportive of the NBA and WNBA players uh, becoming activists at the time. And obviously what's happened with, with the way the leagues reopened uh, in such a dramatic way with tons of social justice messaging, both in the WNBA and, and the NBA is unprecedented in, in professional sport. And I think Adam's leadership has had a lot to do with that. I know for me, uh, the only thing I've really cared about, uh, not only as a player, but in, in my professional endeavors as a coach and life coach and basketball trainer uh, is to be a part of something bigger than myself. You know, when I was reading things about you uh, and Gordon, obviously had been a little bit more familiar with uh, your background than I had. And all I'm doing right now more than ever is listening and learning not to be cliche, but um, I was overcome with emotion, reading a lot of the things that you've been involved with and how you've been a part of something bigger than yourself uh, your whole life, as you've, you know, talked about as a result of the son of a father who was so influential and so ahead of his time, and you've sort of, you know, taken on that role now, and the baton has been handed to you. What, what are you most proud of? Uh, you mentioned uh, Muhammad Ali, and now, you know, this is in the forefront in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, and as you call it, the uh, racial reckoning. Um, what, what, what are you most proud of? I would have to say that the single event that I'm most proud of was that I was able to witness Nelson Mandela inaugurated as president of South Africa um, in a country where, uh, in a country that was the most racist government on the face of the earth for the whole of the 20th century, uh, to, to have a man who had been a political prisoner for 27 years become its president uh, showed me that uh, anything and everything is possible. You know, we may see something as, as immovable that is never going to change. Uh, but if that could happen in South Africa with Nelson Mandela, then, you know, what we're seeing in the racial reckoning right now can go on into the future and really systematically change uh, what racism has been in this country. I think that, uh, you know, you talked about listening, and I think that's a key word right now. I think white people really are listening. Uh, in ways that they might not have before, might have been sympathetic, but didn't really understand. Uh, people said to me when, when I was attacked in 1978, well, now you understand what it's like to be black. And I, I would respond, I don't understand what it's like to be black. I can turn around and walk away from this movement tomorrow and go back to a comfortable middle-class white life and never face discrimination again. If I was black and woke up the next day, I'd still be black and face discrimination every day of my life. It might never happen but it could happen on any given day. Uh, so I could never fully understand that. I think people are listening now to understand the daily experiences that black people go through, uh, as well as getting a grasp on the system at what systematic racism does. The biggest, you know, we, we're talking about South Africa, we're talking about America. The, the, the wealth gap in this country is the, is the um, for me, the umbrella that that germinates all the rest of racism in this country. Mm. The wealth gap between white Americans and black Americans today is greater than it was in South Africa between white South Africans and black South Africans during wow. the height of apartheid. The, the wealth, the aggregate wealth of the 100 wealthiest people in the country on the Forbes list have an aggregate wealth greater than all 42 million African Americans combined. That's a big okay. starting point to have to overcome. Wow. Thank you for sharing so that. Welcome. Thank you. 
Dr. Lapchik, you're, you're alluding to, I've, I'm curious, you know, I'm always thinking like, why is it taken so long? I don't know if these are things that you, that there must be some quiet time you have to yourself, even when you're, you're as busy as you are now. And, 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 you know, what, what are the, what are your thoughts in those times? Do you think, um, why has it taken so long? Do you, do you, um, do you think about the, the obstacles? I mean, there's still, there's still racism. There's still anti-Semitism. Some of those things because of social media are more maybe palpable than they, than they were in decades past. Um, what, what are you optimistic about? Well, history would tell us that this isn't going to change, that the news cycle is going to go by and we'll go back and not pay attention. The reason I'm optimistic now, and it's a gut feeling, it's, it's a gut feeling because I think that uh, Generation Z and the millennials are much more uh, socially conscious and much more committed to social justice as, as a generation. They have the technology. You know, Gordon, when you and I uh, were growing up and, and reading about civil rights, you know, I saw Emmett Till's photograph and a still photograph uh, in the newspaper and it was horrific, but it was a still photograph. There was nobody there to capture how he, di how he died or what happened, but recently, three months ago, all of the world watched a black American man have his life snuffed out by a white cop. Uh, there's no way to deny what happened. Young people have the technology with smartphones to capture those moments of history. You know, the, the issue of police brutality has been going on for, for the history of America. Um, and there were multiple incidents on an annual basis that the police simply had to say, this is what happened. I was defending myself or whatever the, the reason is. And there was no way to prove that wasn't the case. Now we have it on video. Now we can't, you, you can't deny what you're seeing. And we have social media to, to transmit it and communicate more rapidly. Uh, as I said uh, with Michael before, that I think white people are listening more. There are more white people out demonstrating in the streets as a percentage of the demonstrators than there ever have before. Uh, and I think the final thing that we have that's different that gives me a lot of optimism is that this whole thing about athlete activism uh, as being, you know, we, we have those masses of athletes now participating. And if you're an individual athlete and you're, you've spent your life being asked, you know, are you going to play on Saturday? Are you going to win the conference championship? Are you can overcome this injury. And suddenly you're being asked about structural racism and systematic racism. You're being valued as a multidimensional human being for the first time in your life. And it feels good. Mm. And they're not, not going to want to surrender that they, they, they're being fully, embraced as human beings as opposed to ball players and that's a good feeling they're not going to want to surrender it's that. interesting so those are the elements that make me think that this is different and give me hope uh that real change can come about it's interesting you mentioned that because when i was watching race and sports on the golf channel i don't know if you saw that with charles barkley and steph curry and ozzy smith i was watching very acutely their reactions and they've done thousands of interviews, uh, as you have. But I watched Steph Curry, and, and it really felt like, and maybe I was reading too much into it, that he wanted to be remembered as part of his legacy, not just as the greatest shooter in the history of the NBA, but as someone who is involved in this movement. And that was more important to him than than anything and i think to your point that there's so many players now that want to be remembered for things like what colin did in their own way not just being a great athlete and being multi-dimensional 
I think that this is, you know, emblematic of an example of what I was saying is it feels good. Steph is, you know, I think he was, he was unique anyway. I mean, he always had, even before athlete activism became as big as it is, he was talking about intellectual things and talking about ideas and, and figuring out how he and his family could make a difference using their resources to change things by donating them to certain organizations. Uh, but, you know, he also has to see right now that he's beloved even more as a player because he's doing these other things than he was just as a player. Mike, I'd like to know if, if, if there's something that, like we talked about up front, just in, in, in closing, Dr. Lapchik, is, is there a thing that you've, or things that you've walked away from the thousands of interviews you've done thinking, why didn't I get asked this? Why couldn't we have talked about that more? Are there, are there pieces like that or has it all been covered? No, I think there have been pieces in other interviews where I thought that, but you guys have really uh, asked deeper questions and you obviously spent a lot of time preparing for this and I appreciate that. And uh, it was a pleasure to really be with you and, and I uh, am grateful for the opportunity. Well, we, we appreciate you being here. And, um, you know, I, I uh, uh, again, uh, I, I wish our paths had, had a greater intersection. Um, and and I, I just, I look at your, um, your life and it, it's very clear that you are squeezing all of the juice out of the rind, which I, which I really appreciate. And, and I, I'm sure you do as well. And um, uh, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you're maintaining your um, energy and your strength. You must be an incredibly strong-willed man. Um, and I admire that. Well, I'm strong-willed and I'm madly in love with a woman who supports what I do. So <laughs> that, that's a good, that makes it keep going pretty well. Doesn't hurt. We thank you for being with us. Mike, do you want to close with something? No, I just, uh, uh, it's been an honor. You know, we've interviewed Steve Lavin and some Division One coaches, and uh, it, this will be something that I'll remember for the rest of my life and um, just want to continue to pay it forward like you. So thank you so much for your time and much love and respect and, and uh, stay safe and mask up. <laughs> no doubt. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Gordon. If you need anything out here on the West Coast, Dr. Lachick, don't hesitate to, uh, to shout. All right. Take good care. Okay. All, All right. right. You too. Thanks so bye much. Now. Take care. Bye-bye. I mean, I don't know how you could have a 30-minute interview with that guy and feel like you came away and did it all. I mean, he covered a lot, honestly. Yeah. He yeah. did a great Some job. Of, really trying to get him into someplace else. I think he um, felt that, though. Maybe. I think, he, I think he appreciated the thoughtfulness of the questions. But when you're working seven days a week for, you know, 12 hours a day, probably literally, you know, you're 72. And, but you have a, you're rejuvenated over the last couple months and so i think well that... i mean listen you and i both understand what it's like to work in in a in an area that you're passionate his area just happens to come with a much higher cost than our area i mean yeah. i i don't i don't know if i would get back up the next day after answering the door at 10 45 and being <laughs> basically assaulted and and go back at it yeah right you know he he didn't say it in this interview but i maybe he did he said it in the previous podcast they carved the N-word on his chest with his office shears. Right. Yeah, I think they, I mean, he mentioned it at the end, yeah. That's pretty, you know, that's, a, that's pretty harrowing. Well, that was, just part, that was just part of what I'm sure he, he's taken with him from that experience. Yeah. 
Well, it comes with a high cost, so you have to be you have to be really passionate. Wait, let me ask you if uh, if you had asked him about his racial report cards, what what uh, what would you have asked him? And and uh, are are you do you think that uh, we're going in the right direction? Uh, and do you think this whole thing has has helped that movement in terms of what what he's doing? Well, I you know <clears throat> I always felt like um, the racial report card is um, talked about once a year. You, you think know, it'll what, be talked what, about once a year now? No, because I because I think it's got it's got more traction. I mean, I think he, and he's he mentioned it twice that the what's happened with the WCC is really significant for him, and, and that work and that work. And by him, I don't mean him personally. I mean him professionally, and and he acknowledges it. I think he sees that as a uh, what would you call it? They've moved off the starting line. Yeah, they've moved off the starting line. It's something is now rolling. Well, it's perfect timing, I think. And there's no doubt that other conferences are going to follow suit as they should. It's a long time overdue. And I hope other businesses and organizations and major league sports follow their lead. Not to mention Fortune 500 companies and every business worldwide. And well, it's, it's interesting that a- you say that because he's uh, done so many things with the NFL, the NBA, and ESPN. And, and he has a passion for intercollegiate athletics and probably youth sports as well. But he really wants to, you know, um, branch out before it's all said and done uh, yeah. so that, you know, people can take his lead and, you know, continue, you know, this movement. The Black Lives yeah, Matter is just part of it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't I don't know how to answer your question. Where, where I guess the question sounds like where does the where does the racial report card fit in the bigger picture? Yeah, I mean, it used and to be a big part of his conversations, and it's probably, you know, not, not as much of a conversation right now, just because of yeah, because it's, it's <laughs> what's it's, going on. It's it's achieved that you know it's it's achieved its goal. I mean, I think its initial goal was to um, provide a a metric for organizations that were you know interested in that kind of thing, whether they were going to publish it or whether they were going to use it as a catalyst for change. But well, like you said, he's getting phone calls in the middle of our interview because athletic directors now want to know right, how they can right. 30 you know, years better later. handle their athletic departments. Well, right. so I would say, been, where have they been? Yes. Well, he's been there all along. Right. <laughs> where have they been? Well, they've been doing a lot of other things like making money. Making money and, yeah, yeah lots of other things. You're right. But I don't, I don't you know, I, I think um, – you know, I would never minimize that work. I think it's important, and I think you have, you know, you can go back and look at those, those things and the graduation rates, which I think are important. I mean, he mentions John Thompson, and he mentions him in a favorable light. His players don't. I mean, there are guys that, you know, Mike Sweet. He does not say nice things about John Thompson. Right. Yeah. So and we might have him on the uh, pod too down the road. Sweetie. Uh, yeah, I've reached out to Tamir. Uh, well, we know we'll have one additional listener for that show in Nevada. In Nevada, that's right. Wendell will be listening. Yeah, because I'm I'm sure right now if Sleepy Floyd was giving an interview somewhere, <laughs> Wendell would be tuning in. <laughs> All right. Well, we will uh, reconvene later tonight. I appreciate you. You were uh, you were great. Um, I didn't hear the Larry King interview, but um, oh my God! This... At the end, I did it at Goucher. I did it in Crash Hour. Wow. I came over from Towson. I did it at Crash Hour. In right person? He gave, yeah. Right oh, after my he gave God. A, right after he gave a lecture. I have the tape. Um, and he, afterwards, I said, um, uh, Mr. King, will you, will you give me a couple of, um, do a couple promos for me for the station? 
And he said, yeah, sure. What, you, what's the station? I said, it's, it's WCVT. And so I, I don't remember this verbatim, but it's like, he did a thing like, this is Larry King. And you're listening to Gordon Kaplan on WCVT. If you like Gordon Kaplan, listen to WCVT. If you, if you don't like Gordon Kaplan, forever hold your peace. <laughs> Oh, and we, we we carted that up, you know. In those days, you you put it on a like a cassette, a cart a oh, cartridge, right. yeah, and then you just shoved it into the board, and you flipped it on, and you you like you know uh, we'll be right back after this break. Look, you're listening to WCBT with Gordon <laughs> Cow, with Larry King, right that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that was a very interesting interview. Wow. Well, that that's that's for another day. Before we finish with a little bit of banter between John Gordon and myself, I do have a few comments that I want to share with you in terms of my opinions about a couple of things. One, as I've shared in the past week or so, Texas Tech University did the right thing in firing Marlene Stallings. Women's basketball coach there created a culture of abuse and intimidation, and she does not deserve to be a college coach ever again, and uh, in my opinion, should have a lifetime ban with the NCAA. I thought it was great that Buffalo, New York uh, hosted the Toronto Blue Jays since Canada decided to not allow games in Toronto. And the players said that it was amazing at uh, how quickly they upgraded the facilities and made them feel at home. So big kudos to uh, Buffalo, uh, New York for what they've done uh, to, to make the Blue Jays feel at home. Um, I do want to mention again the uh, debate about Rupp Arena and the name change potentially for the basketball field house uh, on the campus of the University of Kentucky. And I know Gordon is neutral about the issue right now, and John believes that the name should be changed, and so do I. Uh, but I understand that Pat Riley, who played on uh, one of Adolph Rupp's teams. And as you know, Pat Riley used to be the coach of the Lakers and has been the president of the Miami Heat for a number of years. And he claims that Adolph Rupp was never a racist. And there's other former players that have said that he used the N-word. And not to justify it, but, you know, uh, during that era, that's just what people did. And so uh, I think the optics of that situation uh, call for an immediate change in the name uh, at Rupp Arena. And uh, what that name should be is, you know, something I think the, the students should decide and the alumni and alumni. And uh, hopefully they do that sooner rather than later. We talked about the WNBA a little bit earlier, but what I didn't know was that there are uh, WNBA games on Twitter. I literally had no idea. And they just partnered again with Twitter to add 10 more games this season. So go to Twitter and the WNBA, and there's 10 games that will be scheduled to be played on Twitter, and you can, you can check those out. I think that's just a great idea, and uh, especially for, for young people to you know, get on social media and, and watch these games you know, while they're out and about, and you know, they don't have to sit at home in a traditional way and watch these games which I think will help viewership and ratings and promote the sport. So great job by the leadership of the WNBA. A couple of other things. Uh, I saw that the NFL is going to allow 
uh, players to have stickers on their helmets. And I remember in college when uh, players used to have those stickers on their helmets based on specific things that they might have done in the game, like sacks and things like that. I always thought that was so cool growing up. But uh, I'm interested to see what the NFL players put on their helmets uh, as far as the Black Lives Matter movement goes, uh, sending messages out uh, with regards to social injustice. So that's going to be cool then uh, on uh, opening night. And the opening day for the NFL, they're going to have uh, certain things in the end zones. And I think all these little things matter, um, whether it's the WNBA doing what they're doing or the NBA doing what they're doing or the NFL. I think it's really important that we continue the narrative and continue to educate people. And hopefully people continue to listen and learn and don't think that this is just something that's going to be like Rodney King or anything else in our history specifically with athletes, that is something that we talk about for a while and then nothing gets done about it. So, but as Dr. Lapchick said, uh, I have a feeling in my gut that things are different now and we all got to do everything we can starting at home. And I think over the course of the next couple of decades, things are going to shift and we're going to see a change in the narrative once and for all. Speaking of changing the narrative, I don't know if you saw this with uh, Major League Soccer, uh, but the players took a knee, and in, this was in Dallas. This is just what John was talking about, if things politically crossed over uh, into sports, and that's exactly what happened. In Dallas, Texas, there was about 2,500 or 3,000 fans at the game, and they booed the players kneeling. Like, I, I can sort of wrap my head around all the controversy in 2016 and maybe 2017. But you have got to be freaking kidding me. You people down there have no idea still of why players are taking a knee. And if you're still booing, you should be absolutely ashamed of yourself. I was so livid and disappointed and embarrassed that those people call themselves Americans. Just absolutely disgusting and just ridiculous. And finally, I saw that Paul Westfall has uh, a very aggressive form of brain cancer. And Paul Westfall was one of my favorite players growing up, and I, I hope he pulls through this, but I just wanted to uh, send a shout out his way for you know what he did as a player. And uh, I remember I went to a game at... Uh, the Silverdome, when the Pistons used to play there, and he dropped like 50 points, something like that, and he was just hitting shots. I had never seen anyone score like that before. You know, I was just relatively new to sports and, you know, going to watch games live and in person, and he's one of my my favorite uh, earliest childhood memories, uh, that game that I saw him. So um, best of luck to him in his fight, and until next time. Enjoy the banter between John, Gordon, and myself in the Sports Deli, Season 1, Episode 10. <laughs> Joel at State Farm has joined the party. How's Chris Paul doing? Dr. J has a State Farm virtual background on the podcast.
Outstanding. I would give you an A for effort and an A for execution. Does he know you're even talking to him? Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Yeah, he gets it. He gets it. Wex figured out how to do a virtual background. Wow. Now, if we could just get Wendell to understand how to use Zoom. Oh, he understands it. Trust me. Yeah. Did he actually have a guest on the other day? Yes, and I don't know how he met him, but it's somebody from Oklahoma. Giving a little plug for our good friend, Wendell Wallace of Wendell's World and Sports. Check him out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as he talks sports, social injustice, the Black Lives Matter movement, and a number of other issues. We love Wendell on this show. Wendell's World and Sports is rated R, so if you do go and check him out, keep this in mind. That's all you need to hear. This is what Wex spent all week doing, is making sure he had virtual backgrounds for the next guest that he wasn't a part of today. Exactly. Overnighting him a case of Diet Coke. You and your Diet Coke. You and your Diet Coke. You know who you take after? Who? Guy who used to go to Fridays a lot. <laughs> Why are you eating during this call? We haven't really started yet, have we? Well, the eating has clearly started. Can you hear me chewing? It's a lot yeah. of wheat, Mike. It's a lot of wheat. Mm. I feel like wax right now. Yeah. Did you want a Diet Coke and a smoke? I don't smoke. What the hell? Wax, how many times have you smoked weed? Never. Really? Me neither. Gordon, on the other hand, medicinally. Whatever. <laughs> Do you have a virtual background of Scott Beaton? Oh, that yeah. would be great. Is that even possible? John's got some good headphones on. Did you, did you invest in some new headphones too, Jonathan? These are like 20 bucks. What? There's a that's that's there's why there's a mute button. You'll be all right. Those cheap ass headphones you got didn't. Uh, yeah. Is that one. a Dr. Browns you're drinking? We've come a long way since the the soy milk and the <laughs> cooler at York, haven't we? Once in a while, I'll have a Dr. Pepper with my pizza or my. Now, when you burger. when you when you have that kind of food, do you play that Vanilla Ice song in the background to make it to bring the whole atmosphere? To, yeah. And ice, you take, you, you'd obviously take your shirt off for that, right? <laughs> you know, eventually the custodian leaves this building I'm in and locks it up with me in it. Are you be all right? He's not leaving until nine o'clock. No, he leaves at eight. You all right, John? No. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> what, what what happened, John? You're getting really irritable. Is Stacy? Uh, Why are you taking anything? so long? We're like 15 minutes into your eating. All Wex, right, gentlemen. Did, Wex, Wex, did you ever go to Farrington Square? No. I don't think it was there when I was there. I tried to find some pictures of the weight room, but I... I, I, I... <laughs> oh, you guys are crazy. All right, well, until next time, boys. Don't let the door hit you in the tuchus. Great job. Again, you can always send us an email at thesportsdeli at gmail.com, thesportsdeli at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Mike Hootner and on Twitter at Michael Hootner. And we leave you with the South African national anthem in honor of our incredible guest on today's podcast, Dr. Richard Lapchick and the incredibly courageous and inspirational Nelson Mandela. God bless Africa. May her glory be lifted high. Hear our petitions. God bless us. 
your children. God, we ask you to protect our nation. Intervene and end all conflicts. Protect us. Protect us. Protect our nation. Nation of South Africa. From the blue of our heavens. From the depths of our sea. Over everlasting mountains. Where the echoing crags resound. Sounds the call to come together. And united we shall stand. Let us live and strive for freedom in South Africa, our land. 